You know, I love this generation of young people because when they get something in their head, when they get something in their head to do, church, they just do it. You know, it was funny because when those young men decided to longboard for 100 miles the very first time, that was the second time they did it, the very first time, they're like, hey, you want to ride like 100 miles on a longboard and raise money for Speed the Light? And all the friends were like, yeah, and they had no idea how long 100 miles was. But they went ahead and they did it. And it was funny because one of the young men, his name is Isham. Isham said, I, I, I saw that the need was greater than my comfort. I mean, think about this next generation of young people who are mobilizing to raise money for missionaries. It's an absolutely incredible thing. Church, today I just wanted to talk to you about what it takes to lead the next generation. I think it's important for each and every single one of us to realize uh, that as the people of God, that we have an obligation to God to disciple and mentor and to raise up the next generation. Notice I didn't say reach the next generation. I said raise them. Because it's much easier to raise a generation than it is to reach one. Paul had this in mind too. You know, I want to I read something to you from 2 Timothy. It's out of... 2 Timothy 3, and it starts in verse 10. And these are Paul's final charges to Timothy, his young disciple. Paul's at the very end of his life. Paul who led this incredible missionary life. Paul who dedicated his life to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. Who went from town to town planting churches at the risk of his own life and definitely by laying down his own comfort. And here are his final words to the young man who is going to pick things up where Paul has left off. And this is what Paul is going to say to his young disciple, parents, elders, leaders of the church. He says this, Timothy, you certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith. You know my patience. You know my love. And you know my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering that I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus is going to suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. Listen to this. This is powerful. It says, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. Listen to this. You know they are true because you can trust those who taught you. You know the things that you have been taught are true, church, because you can trust the one who taught you. Now, now realize that Paul didn't just start with that sentence. He ended after giving Timothy a reminder of everything that Timothy has seen Paul go through. Father, we just come before you right now. And I pray, oh God, that today, that as we listen to this message, we could be challenged in our hearts, convicted by the Holy Spirit if necessary, 
learn the difference in devotion and just the appearance of devotion. In your name we pray, Jesus. Help us with this because there is a whole generation or two or three underneath of us that are watching us. And what we do carries far much more weight than what we say. Oh God, I pray that our words would carry the weight of a life of devotion as we minister to the next generation. In your name we pray. And everyone said, and everyone said, I'm just going to wake you up a little bit in here today, church. Hey, are we, are, we, are, we, are we doing okay for time right now? It's the difference between preaching and preaching. All right. Okay. So, because so, 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 I know I showed you like the really long video and I apologize. That's my bad. All right. But we didn't get the first video. So I just, hey, we're good. Okay. So pastors are always doing the clock in their head. And I'm not going to this morning. But I, I am going to get you out in time to beat the Baptist to lunch. Okay. I promise you, you will not be behind them on the waiting list. Okay. So here, here's the deal. Church, um, <clears throat> I, 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 I grew up on the south side of Chicago, like actual Chicago. Uh, we moved around quite a bit. Uh, we were on Cermak, we were on Ashland for a little bit, then we went a little deeper. We were in uh, Burbank, we were in Elsa, we were in Worth, we were in Blue Island, then we bounced over to the west side, and uh, you know, we finally, I finished out my high school years living with my grandmother in, in Burr Ridge. Uh, not bougie Burr Ridge, broke Burr Ridge because my grandma bought one of the first houses in Burr Ridge and then mansions started popping up all around us. It was crazy. Uh, so what you need to know also is that I am the youngest of six boys. Six boys. There wasn't one woman in the house except for my mother. God bless her heart. We didn't ever have nice furniture in my house. In fact, when my mom and dad, they, 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 when we all were out of the house finally, and I was the youngest, when I left the house, they moved out of their old house and they moved to Geneva, Illinois. Geneva's nice. I walked into their house, they had a little townhome in Geneva, and they had nice furniture, nice couches, nice rug, nice things. I'm like, where was this? When I was growing up in the house, and my mom laughed in my face. Laughed in my face. Like six boys, you don't ever buy nice furniture. That's a mistake. Body slamming each other. How many of you grew up in a house where your parents said this phrase to you when you pressed them on an issue? Because I said so. Anybody grow up with that mom or that dad? I did. Now, I don't know if my mom started that way. I'm sure boy number one, she was rational. I'm sure she was like, well, this is why, sweetheart. Here's the three-point sermon on why we don't stick our finger in electrical sockets. By the time she got to me, though, she was a prophetess. That woman would tell me what I was about to do before I even wanted to do it. I was boy number six, 
and I would just look at my mom and be like, why can't I hang out with them? Why can't I go down the road that way? Why can't I hang out at the gas station? Why can't I cross the railroad tracks and fish in the cemetery? Because it was the only like place that we had a fishing hole in Chicago. Like, why can't I, why can't I do this? Why can't, and you want to know what my mom just said to me all the time? Because I said so. Lord, have mercy. Paul has a little bit of a because I said so moment with Timothy. But here's the thing that I love about Paul is that his say so comes with the weight of his life and his experience and his devotion. Paul does not have any disconnect between what he is preaching and what he is proclaiming and what he has practiced with his life. And so as he is giving these instructions to Timothy, yes, he has a because I say so moment with the young man. But Paul also counterbalances that with you know me. You've seen me. You've watched me. I've proved it. We have a generation that is coming up, church, that does not care about your title. They do not care about the words you say and how much intelligence and how much authority you put behind them. The authority they are most concerned with is the authority of the example of your life. Mm. I want to take a look at Paul's life. I want to take a look at a moment in Paul's life when he arrived in the city of Ephesus. This story can be found in Acts chapter 19. The name of this message today, if you're taking notes, is devotion for the next generation. It's not devotion to the next generation, although we should have that. But this message is about our devotion that we have to God for the next generation. Does that make sense? Yes, we can be devoted to the next generation, but our devotion to God will show how devoted we are for the next generation. They're watching us. They're watching us. You know, it was, it was a couple of years ago, just a small example of this, I was up early in the morning and I had my Bible app out on my phone and I was going through my word and I was just reading the, I was just reading the Bible and my daughter she comes downstairs and she says, Dad, what game are you playing on your phone? She just assumed. Because sometimes Dad has long days and I need to play games on my phone. And she just assumed that I wasn't in my word. She just assumed that I was playing games on my phone. It's just shocking to me how much our children notice. It's shocking to me how much the next generation is actually watching us. How many of you know who wrote the book of Acts? Bible quiz time. Does anybody know who authored the book of Acts? Luke. Oh, that's 10,000 points. Well done. I don't know what the 10,000 points are going to, but tell Casey's gas station. I'm sure they're going to give you a discount on something. Luke. I will also give you this little bit of trivia. Uh, Luke actually wrote most of the New Testament, not Paul. Paul wrote most of the books in the New Testament, Luke wrote most of the words and the content. Between his gospel and the book of Acts, 
We know that Luke wrote most of the New Testament. And, and I love Luke. In, in fact, I'm going to tell you that Luke is quickly becoming one of my favorite authors in the Word of God. And here's why. It's not that Luke is just intelligent, because he is. It's that he's incredibly intentional when he writes. Luke is a thoughtful and thought-provoking author. And we see that all over his gospel, and we see that in the book of Acts. An example of that, an example of Luke's thoughtfulness and intentionality is Luke's constant use of juxtaposition in his writing. Juxtaposition is where you take things that are seemingly at opposite ends of various spectrums and smashing them together in scripture so his readers can compare and contrast. And this is intentional. Why? Because Luke understood his audience. Luke was written in a high structure of Greek. It was intended to strengthen the faith of Greek-speaking Christians steeped in a Hellenistic culture that prided itself on schools of thought and philosophy. When Luke writes his gospel, he doesn't just want to tell you about Jesus. Luke wants you to see Jesus. He wants you to come to an understanding of Jesus. He wants you to perceive Christ. Here's an example of that. In Luke chapter 7, he's going to tell the story of a Roman official in Capernaum whose servant was healed by Jesus. And then right after that, he's going to launch right into a story of a widow who's nameless, whose child was raised from the dead in a small, know-nothing town called Nain. Broke town. So here you have this Roman official with power and with clout and with authority, and you have this widow who has no name, who has no money. She's from nowhere. She's done nothing of report, but she gets the same treatment from Jesus as the big shot did. Luke wants you to see that. Luke is going to take the Beatitudes, and he's going to smash them together in chapter 6 with the woes. Like, Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew's going to separate the Beatitudes and the woes by like a thousand chapters, not Luke. Luke wants you to perceive Christ. Why? Blessed are the persecuted. Woe to you Pharisees who persecute. Without coming right out and saying it, Luke just allowed his Greek audience to perceive with their philosophical minds that Jesus is just. Without ever saying the word. Interesting how Luke writes. Luke is a master at creating this type of tension in Scripture. He's a master at it. Now, I'm telling you all of this to set up two moments that we're going to take a look at in Acts chapter 19. Two moments that are smashed together, remember, by our author, Luke, who is probably doing this on purpose. Two moments that seem like they don't have a ton to do with each other, except that they both happened in Ephesus, and they are both part of the origin story of the church that was planted there. But because Luke is the author, it's important to see what is being said, and then to go a little deeper and ask what is being shown. Ready? Let's dive in. 
Acts chapter 19. Family, this is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. There is drama. There is comedy. It is wonderful. I, I can't wait to read this to you. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 16. It says this. Then Paul went to the synagogue, and he preached boldly for the next three months. He was arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But because uh, some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way or the gospel. So Paul left the synagogue and he took the believers with him. And then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that the people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Listen to this. It says, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons had merely touched his skin or placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Glory. Here's where Luke takes a hard left. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation saying, I command you in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus. I know Paul. Who are you? That's a moment. Who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence. This is 7v1, by the way. Let's just put that out there. Attacked them with such violence that they fled the house naked. And battered. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight before. I've had five older brothers. I've been in a couple of rows. <laughs> I have never had the clothes beaten off of my body. I don't know what it takes. That's a soul wound, men, isn't it? Like, can I just talk to the men for a minute in here? You get the clothes beaten off of your body? Hang it up. I ain't fighting anymore. I'm a lover, not a fighter. That's it. I am a pacifist from now on. So the first moment, the spotlight is on Paul. Paul. Ready? Paul, who at this point in history is on his third missionary journey. Paul, who was whipped at this point with 39 lashes five times. Paul, who was beaten with rods three times. Paul, who endured a stoning so bad that he was thought to be dead. He was dragged outside of a city gate only to wake up and keep on spreading the gospel. Paul, who is thrown in prison over and over and over and over again. And not just prison, the inner prison. It was nasty. Paul, who is chased by angry mobs who has had assassination attempts on his life more than once. Paul, who was at this point shipwrecked twice, he was about to be shipwrecked a third time. I'm not getting on boats after the first time. Done. 
Paul, who is now in Ephesus, even after all of this, even after all of this, Paul is now in Ephesus, and he is here to spread the gospel. Let me talk to you a little bit about daily life in Ephesus so you can just understand what the Apostle Paul is up to. In Ephesus, you would wake up very early in the morning, five in the morning, and you would go to work, and you would work at your trade until about 11 o'clock in the afternoon. At about 11 o'clock in the afternoon, you would punch out, and you would go for about four hours, and you would hang out at the market. You would go, and you would buy goods, you would spend time with your family, or you would go and hang out at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. The lecture hall of Tyrannus was like old school Netflix. You would go there, and you would go into a different hall, you would go into a different room, or you would stand in front of a podium, and you would listen to your favorite communicator. This is where Paul ended up having to rent out space. Why? Because as soon as he got to Ephesus, he was trying to be a good practicing Jewish man, and so he went to take the completion of the Jewish message to the temple. But they didn't like what he was saying, so they kicked him out. But Paul's like tenacious, right? So he's like, well, I'm not leaving Ephesus. There's so many people that are coming to this city. They need to hear about Jesus. Ephesus would have been the fourth largest city in the world at that time. It was the seat to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis or Diana, just depending on what side of the tracks you grew up on. So you have all of these people that are coming, and they're making pilgrimages. And so Paul, he's like burdened for these people. He's like, I need to tell them about Jesus. And so what does he do? He goes out to the countryside, and he starts making tents, and he starts cutting canvas, and he starts winnowing poles down. And he starts making these tent spikes. Because all of these pilgrims are coming to Ephesus, so they need a place to live. So I'm going to sell them tents. That money that he's making from selling tents, he's using to rent out space at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And tell people about God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is working tooth and nail to get Jesus into the hearts and the heads of these people. Here's something fascinating. It says in the scripture here that Paul was able to perform unusual miracles. Listen to this. It says when handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched Paul's skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. I want to talk to you about the handkerchief and the apron here. This is important for us to understand what's happening. The handkerchief was actually a bandana that Paul would wrap around his head to keep the sweat out of his eyes while he was working on making tents. The apron that he was wearing would have been a thick leather apron. This, he wasn't doing barbecue and some kiss the chef apron. That's not what we're talking about. It was a thick leather apron that he would use because when he was making tools, he didn't want to bludgeon himself or cut himself. And it said that Paul's apron would be laid on people or a handkerchief would be, would be laid on people and they would be healed. Can I tell you that it wasn't a piece of clothing that was anointed, it was Paul's devotion. You have some scam artists out there that are like, I'm going to sell you this prayer hanky and you're going to lay it on your grandmother and she's going to dance again. No! That's false. That's nonsense. It wasn't the article of clothing, it was the devotion that was anointed in Paul's life. 
It was a moment that the Lord was using to perform unusual miracles so that the church in Ephesus could grow against the demonic oppression from the temple of Diana and Artemis that was oppressing that city. Witchcraft was prominent. Mm. I'm going to move on. Do we get... Do we get that Paul was devoted? Okay, so what I believe that Luke is trying to do here is paint a picture of that devotion. Look at this with me. You, you guys have to say that like, <laughs> people are, <laughs> I, I want to draw a fact to the attention. I want to draw attention to the fact that, that, again, Paul had intimacy. Paul held loosely to the things of this world. Paul didn't allow culture to shift him. Paul was the one that was shifting the culture. Because of what happened, we saw that anointing and revival was taking place in Ephesus. Because of Paul's devotion, the socioeconomic culture of that whole society was being flipped on its head. The anointing wasn't hanging on some clothing. The anointing was mantled on Paul's devotion. People are being set free. People are getting healed. The socioeconomic structure of Ephesus is being turned on its head. And in the middle of all of this, our author Luke is going to shift the spotlight over to the seven sons. And it's important to ask why. Like, like what, what is Luke trying to show us here, family? Why is he stacking these stories? What is the comparison that is being alluded to? What is the juxtaposition that is happening here? What tension is Luke trying to create? Again, let's read this. Verse 13, there was a group of Jews. They were traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a leading priest, were doing this. One time when they tried it, the evil spirits replied, I know Jesus. I know Paul. But who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. That is a totally different result from what Paul sees. That is a completely different result from what Paul sees. Let me suggest that if Luke is painting a picture of devotion in Paul, is it possible that he is comparing it with what is only an appearance of devotion in the seven sons? I think it's fair to say that the sons were devoted to their position and their fancy title. I think it's fair to say that the sons were devoted to their craft and to their appearance. But was there an intimacy with God? I don't think so. I don't think it's a stretch to go there this morning. Listen to, to the demonic reply. Jesus, we know. This word know is kinosko. It's an intimate form of the word knowledge. It is attached to a knowledge of awe and trembling and fear and reverence and respect. And then it goes on to say, Paul, we know. The word for know here is epistemei. Which is, we know Paul because wherever Jesus is, Paul seems to be too. There's just a closeness between Paul and Jesus. If the word of Jesus is being spread somewhere, it can be traced back to Paul. So what the demons are saying here is, we recognize and fear the authority of Jesus. We recognize the authority of Paul who is always with Jesus, but you, 
There is no authority. There is no anointing. There is no intimacy. There is no devotion. There is no, there is no mentorship. There is no example. You are pretenders, and hell has no idea who you are. We don't know you. You don't threaten us. And then they were physically overcome and beaten so violently that they fled the house naked. I want to talk about that word naked. It's a weird word study to do. I get that, but I'm going to go there. The word naked here is actually the word hymnos. My dad is from Kentucky, so he would say naked. They weren't naked. They were actually stripped of their priestly garments and left in their underclothing, their worldly clothing. Isn't that fascinating? They weren't nude. The text actually implies that their priestly garments were stripped. And what was underneath is what was exposed. Let's chat. What's underneath your title? What's underneath your position? What is underneath our talent? What is underneath your proclamations in the home? Church, what's underneath your head knowledge of God? I think it's funny because we can acquire all of this knowledge and live under the illusion that we are walking in experiences with Christ. Leonard Ravenhill said it this way, you can have an intimate knowledge of God and still not have the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is presence. It's funny to me that as we want to be examples to the next generation, it seems to be like a do as I say and not as I do approach. But Paul never took that approach. Paul led with devotion. If we want to be people of the power of God, we must learn to be people of the presence of God. Have to be. Knowledge alone will not sustain you. Knowledge alone will not sustain you. I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'm going to take one minute. I just feel like I need to say this. There was this parable that Jesus told about the builder who built his house on the rock. Church on the rock, come on, amen, let's go. And the builder who built his house on the sand. You want to know what stands out to me in that parable is this. Is that the builder who built his house on the sand actually succeeded in building a house. He had a roof over his head for a minute. He had a nice floor. He had a nice bed. This man who built his house on the sand was actually living under the illusion that he figured it out. The Bible didn't say that the house didn't stand. The Bible says that the house didn't withstand. I wonder what's underneath. I wonder what things are coming into our life and crashing under our lives that are stripping out everything that is on top of us and leaving us exposed to the next generation. I wonder what the last two years of COVID did to our faith and to our dependence. I, I hated what happened. I hated not being able to come to the altars and, 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 and pray over one another and be with each other and congregate in groups. But there is one thing that I loved. Even though the coronavirus took away our ability to have a public altar, I think it reintroduced the church to its private altar again. What's underneath? 
What's underneath? What does your relationship with Jesus look like when nobody's watching? The sons had decoration. They had decoration, all right. They came, they showed up in their priestly garments. They had their title. We're the seven sons of Siva, which also meant that they had a following. They attended a ministry school of the leading priests. What a pedigree. Woo! The sons had declaration, didn't they? They not only had the decoration, they had the declaration. They looked right at that demonic uh, possessed man and said, in the name of Jesus, you come out. I don't know how many of you have spent time in Pentecostal church, but that's how we're taught it's done. If you see somebody that needs healing, if you see somebody who's possessed or oppressed, you say in the name of Jesus. And if you want to get specific, you say in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So the demon doesn't get confused. The name of Jesus, come out. They had the decoration, they had the declaration, but what they were lacking was the devotion. And I think we've done church far too long where we have become experts of the decorations and experts of the declarations, but have we become experts of devotion? We've become so good at putting on the clothes and having the fancy titles and saying all of the right things and worshiping with all of these great songs. But if there is no devotion, the people that come after us will not see a reason in our lives to keep pursuing. Oh, all right, I got to wrap this up. I got to wrap it up. I'm sorry. I'm being Pentecostal. I'm being long-winded in the name of Jesus. All right, so here's the thing. Are you feeling that tension this morning? A lot of experts are like, why is the next generation leaving the church? I'll tell you why. Because the next generation is saying, prove it, prove it, and we're not. I have three children, and I am privileged to have a teenager in my house now, bless God. Two that are right around the corner. That's my youngest son, Corbin, right here on the front row. He's amazing. Love him. He decided to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and come on the road with dad. We're all clapping for you, son. It's for you. All right, so I watched my kids transition from asking this question. What? What? What is this? What is this? What is this? What does this do? What does this do? What is this? What, 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 what? To why? Your kids will shift from focusing, thinking like engineers to thinking like philosophers. And when they hit those teenage years, they're not going to just trust you anymore. They're going to be watching you for proof. And if your life is disconnected from your proclamation, it's going to do damage, families. Have you confronted feelings, problems, or obstacles that have left you feeling exposed and powerless these last couple of years? Worship team, if you can come on up. That's a good sign, right? It's like he's getting done. Worship team, praise him. I think if this year has taught us anything is that it's very, 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 very easy to come to the end of ourselves. To be confronted with realities that we can't do anything about in our own power. And this is why we need to be devoted to Christ. And everything that we do. Wow. Imagine the example 
that we can give our kids if we walk in experiences with the Lord in front of them daily. Can I, can I just lay something at your feet? I know I, I don't want to lay a heavy burden at your feet. I want to lay something that frees you at your feet. I'm not trying to show my kids a perfect father. I'm trying to show my kids a pursuing father. I, I'm not perfect. Because it's not my job for my kids to see a dad that is always right. My job is to show them that God is always right and I follow God. And sometimes I need an adjustment too. This is why as a father I can go to my kids and apologize to them. When I have messed up or done something in front of them that I shouldn't have done. I stub my toe sometimes in the house and I need to apologize to my children for speaking in tongues in a way that they shouldn't be hearing. Don't you amen that, Corbin, all right? Don't you amen that. Zechariah 4, 6, we put it on coffee mugs all the time, but it's a powerful verse. It says, it is not by might, it is not by my power, but it is by my spirit, saith the Lord. It is not by your might, it is not by your power, but it is by my spirit, saith the Lord. Isaiah 66, the prophet, I know I'm taking a hard left here, but the prophet is saying, God wants to bless people with his parent, with his presence. But God cannot bless people with his presence right now because you are not humble, you are not contrite, and you do not tremble at his word. Those three things. If every household could humble themselves before the Lord, if every household would move in contrition, What's contrition? Brokenness. Brokenness over sin. Brokenness over your own sin and brokenness over the sin that is in our community and our country and in our world. And if every household would learn to just tremble at the word of the Lord, we would have the presence of God. If we would pursue those things, we would change the dynamics of our families been doing youth ministry for 22 years I'm 40 years old here's what I have seen is that students who hold on to Christ into their 20s and into their 30s had parents that pursued Christ when they were teenagers it was the example it was the mentorship and that is why Paul can say to Timothy at the end of his life, Paul, you can trust what I've taught you because you can trust me. May we be a church that can say that to the next generation. Can you stand up wherever you're at? If I have any prayer partners in this place, can you just go ahead and come forward or move to wherever it is that you move? I think it's time for us to respond to this message today, church. You know, the altar is for everyone, not just the sinner, because all of us are sinners, so all of us need the altar. <laughs> if this is your first time at this church, or if this is your hundredth, your thousandth, the altar is still a place where you can be altered. 
It's a place where you can pursue the Lord. Maybe men and women, moms and dads, you just need to gather up your families. And you just need to have a time of family prayer. Dads, maybe your kids need to hear you praying out loud. Right now in this moment, over them. Here's the response this morning. It's very simple. Two, two responses, really. The first one is one that I give at every single message that I preach. And that's to respond to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Why did Paul go through everything that he went through? It wasn't because he was a lunatic. It wasn't because he was delusional. It wasn't because he was a madman. It was because Jesus was worth it. And if this is your first time here and you're trying to decide whether Jesus is worth it or not, I'm going to tell you he is. Would you open your heart up to Jesus Christ today? And if you need to make a decision for Jesus, if you need to know what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus, maybe you've heard the word saved or salvation before in your life, I encourage you to go and find a pastor or a staff member at this church and have a conversation with them about what that means. If you need to prayer, if you need to pray a prayer of healing, if you need to pray a general prayer, our prayer partners are up here for you right now. But here's the big response. And I'm going to ask everybody in here to close your eyes and bow your head. This is nothing weird. This is just for intimacy and focus. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand for me. It's a sign of acknowledgement. It's a courageous thing to do. If you're in here today, and you would honestly say, man, Pastor Chris, this, this message got me. And I, I know you're not asking me to be perfect because only Jesus is perfect, but I need to work on my pursuit. I need to work on my example. I've been a because I've said so kind of parent. I've been a because I said so kind of adult. I've just been relying on knowledge, but I haven't been really laying out a very good example. I've had to go to the altar for that hundreds of times in my life, even in my ministry career. There's no judgment in this place. There is no condemnation. There's just Jesus willing to meet you where you're at and help you through the Holy Spirit to grow in that area. So if that's you, can you just lift up your hand all over this place? Thank you, thank you, wow, thank you, thank you, wow, praise God. If you need to come forward and pray about that, the worship team's gonna pray, or gonna sing in a little bit, and then Pastor Josh is gonna come and close us out. Why is it so important for us to set an example to our kids? Because there's a lot of opinions in this world that, is, that are trying to capture their hearts and their minds and their attention. In a world of opinions, can we give them experience? Because a young person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an opinion. Let's pray. Let's worship. Let's respond. Come forward when I say amen. Pray with your family. Circle up. Take your time. Jesus, we love you. We love you, God. We praise you in this place. So, God, let's raise up our voices together, church. God, we need you, Jesus. We know that we are not perfect, but God, you are perfect in us. 
Oh, God, you give us something that we don't deserve. You give us your righteousness. And we're saved by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. And, Father, we need you right now, God. We can't do this on our own. Jesus, would you just be with us, be with our families, oh, God. Would you help us to minister to the next generation? Would you help us at the end of our lives look at the next generation and say, it was worth it. It worked. I lived for you, Jesus, and I wouldn't have lived for anyone else or anything else. You saw my life. You saw my example. And it was worth it. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's pray with each other.